welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be speaking with filmmaker and amazing activist Ryuji Chua. Among other things, he will be telling us about his recent extraordinary appearance on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, who isn't on The Daily Show anymore. And he will be talking about fish. That's what he was talking about on The Daily Show and why we should care about them. He was such an incredible genius on this show. I just sat there with like my chin on my chest. Yeah, I'm sure you can find it online. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend listening to it. As I highly recommend listening to this interview because he's a really good messenger. He just really knows how to message this so well. And we talk a lot about that and how much thought he's put into it. And also about uh, the film he made about fish, which is really extraordinary. And the other film projects he's worked on with animal rights. He is a real gift to the movement. Yes, totally. And we will also link to it in the show notes if you want to watch it, which I recommend for sure. So before we get to our interview with him, I can't believe it is almost the holidays. And I have to say, As someone who celebrates both Hanukkah and Christmas and considers myself an atheist Jew, it is interesting to me that it is overlapping. Hanukkah is overlapping with Christmas this year, which brings me a lot of joy because I always get annoyed at the world when Hanukkah is happening at the very, very beginning of the month and then Christmas is the end. And I sort of feel like, I don't know, there's like a disconnect. But now we get to do it all at the same time. That is a hard burden for you to carry, I know, but I agree. It's always nice when they come together. And you did a holiday thing this past weekend, didn't you? You went to, you went to a cookie party. I, I'm pretty jealous. I haven't been to a cookie party in a long time. Well, you did go to the cookie party of my kitchen this morning and went into the... I had, you had a few leftover cookies. Well, and that's because... And I ate them. My neighbor, my neighborhood is so kind and... and Almost, I would say the vast majority of the cookies there this this time at the party were vegan. And one of my neighbors was like, look what you did, which I didn't. And also there's a brand new fabulous vegan who just moved in down the street. So I'm not the lone vegan on the street. But it was so nice that like without doing very much, we kind of helped to influence our, our neighborhood, which is based on the, you know, where we're located. We're between two hospitals. There are a lot of doctors and nurses and physical uh, and physician assistants, I should say, on my block. And so it was just kind of awesome that so much of it is vegan and and absolutely phenomenal. Like our street should open a cafe. It was so good. That would be fun if your street would open a cafe. I do think it's so rewarding to introduce people to things like vegan cookies because you still run into so many people who just, who just, like, it's so hard to remember this, that people still don't know that vegan food is good because they don't try it. And so at a party, they're kind of, for, and if they have to cook it, then they're really trying. I remember you telling me recently you had some guest, I think, who who was vegetarian, who didn't want, who you were ordering pizza and she said, no, don't, I don't want any cheese on it because vegetarians don't understand that we've, we've got the cheese. Like we've had it for years now. It's fine. You'll like it. People just don't try stuff. So anytime you can force pe- food down people's throat is really a good opportunity. Oh my God. You know, it's so funny because uh, when I was vegetarian for the you know few years, I was vegetarian before I went vegan, I would have been exactly the same way. And I'm- Yeah, but the cheese would have been bad then. It was different. I'm not used to dealing with vegetarians and like specifically non 
you know, either non-vegans or like non-vegetarians. That didn't make sense. Usually I deal with people who are either, either vegan or they just are people who eat meat, milk and eggs. Right. No, vegetarians are just confusing. It was. And so I said, when was the last time you had vegan cheese? And she was like 10 years ago. And I was like, okay, listen, <laughs> you do you. But honestly, because she just wanted me to order it without cheese, which I wound up doing. And I was like, we have come a very long way. And she still insisted. She goes, well, it's just something I try to avoid. That was just the answer. She tries to avoid vegan cheese? Yeah. Okay. That's what she <laughs> Okay. It was still lovely to have her and also to just be at that party was was so great and uh, you know, it's been an interesting time in terms of like maybe during the holidays we're more exaggerated versions of ourselves in some ways because I started to notice things that have just been going on all the time but I haven't noticed like just messaging around animal issues like I am on this like email list serve and it's just like a bunch of people on it and, and it has nothing to do with veganism or animal rights. And someone asked a question about where she could get this animal taxidermied and the animal was a squirrel who had been in her attic and they caught this, they caught and killed the squirrel and, and ha, ha, ha. now they want to make him into like a fixture in their living room because it was so funny and her little son just ordered a a hula shirt for the squirrel body and a surfboard like a little surfboard and oh my god i was like i was like vomiting on onto my computer keyboard and so i just was thinking like do other people realize how bad this is so i sort of gauged a couple people who i actually know who are on this list or who are not animal rightsy and they were all completely and genuinely horrified and so this one friend of mine texted me and was like I am not an I am as she said I am as far from an animal activist as you can get and then she wrote in parentheses even though I think what you do is so important and it's really impacted me and she said but that squirrel was just living his little squirrel life and this is not at all funny or cute. And I was like, dude, you're more of an animal activist than you realize. I Seriously. Mean, you had the message and it just, it kind of made me think about just how people view animal activists and how it's just this this world that they could never be in, be, even though maybe they feel that way about, you know, taxidermy or, or hunting or what have you. And it's scary to people to not only to assign the word vegan to themselves, but to assign the word activist to themselves. I think that's a really important story. And I'm not exactly sure how to parse it. Like, how do we get past that resistance that people feel? It's probably the veganism thing. People feel that they have to be a vegan in order to be an animal activist, or they feel like they have to stand up against the horror that that we've created of the world and they have to they have to take positions and and they have to stick up for animals and you know they don't want to bother doing that but they actually this is what like we're always saying actually everybody agrees with us not everybody the woman who had that the family that had that that squirrel taxidermy apparently just thinks animals are garbage but 99% of the world kind of agrees with us they just don't want to go there they just don't want to stand up for what they believe in that's the big block yeah, it, it is something that we should, <laughs> we need to be aware of, I guess, too, in, in how we present ourselves. Like, just you, you're a person who cares about other individuals. Like, 
use the word activist or don't use the word activist. I don't really care. It's so funny because this story kind of reminds me of the first time I met your brother. And it was the actual opposite story. He wanted to claim that he was an animal or no, that people were animal activists who worked for a uh, or animal rights activists who work for this dog charity. And I, you know, I, with my big mouth, always polite, well, mostly polite, pointed out that they're, you know, they're dog activists and they're, that's wonderful. And I really appreciate what they're doing. But to call somebody an animal rights activist, we were all going with the assumption, which I think was safe, that these people ate meat and, you know, didn't really stick up for other animals. That you can't call yourself an animal rights activist if you're, uh, if it, just because because you love dogs. I mean, you're a dog activist. And uh, we had this huge discussion because your brother never lets go of anything. I wanted to get out of that discussion so much. So it's actually kind of the opposite story. He wanted to claim the term animal activist for these people. And I guess for himself a little bit. And uh, most people want to shy away from it. They're actually a little bit more authentic about what it means. I mean, I guess we've, we've made some progress in what people think it means to be an animal activist. And they understand it means more than just, you know, not wanting to make a, a joke sculpture out of a dead squirrel or love dogs. It, it, it means, a, you know, a, a serious commitment to changing the way your life works and people just don't want to go there. How could it be? How could it be that people want to live in this world and want to think this world is okay when they know what's happening? All right. There's also, I'm going to stop you. Stop me before I explode. Yeah. So this also sort of reminds me of like when people don't assign the word activists to themselves, nor do they shy away from it, but they are grateful that people are doing it. You remember last week I mentioned to you, we adopted a little dog, Murray, and we were, we started training him and he's in this class and we have our little vegan hot dogs. There's four other dogs there. And some, one of the, one of the assistants came over and, you know, gave him a treat. And I was like, oh, actually he, he's vegan. We have these, we have these little vegan hot dog pieces and he loves them. They're very high quality for him, which is what you need when you're training a dog is a high quality treat. And, and sometimes we'll use vegan cheese also. And so she's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I was like, yeah, that's okay. Here, here's some treats. And she goes, you know, actually we have some sweet potato treats too. Let me go grab them. And the teacher, that was the assistant, the teacher heard us talking about that. And she goes, she looks at us and she goes, oh my gosh, thank you so much for doing that. Didn't you, you want to strangle her? Yes. <laughs> I was like, you're welcome. Like, it's just, it's so weird. Also, when we're thanked for doing something that seems really obvious, but especially in the context of like an animal environment, literal animal environment, like dog training, it, it was, she is actually in a very influential position as a dog trainer with a class. She could actually show how the dogs would actually love these these treats. Most most dogs love the treats. And she could convey the concept that, well, if you love your dog, maybe you should think about other animals. You know, just by being that person, she would have that opportunity to reach these people who, you know, who might be open to that message. It's just so crazy. The whole world is so crazy. Messaging is a hard thing for a lot of people. Like maybe they'll have these conversations with themselves in their heads or maybe with their trusted partners. But I think in general, people don't want to put themselves in a vulnerable position of having to stand up for something. And then like you found yourself in an argument with my brother that time all those years ago. You were a person who could hold your own. But a lot of people, when they're 
around a personality like my brother, like combative and loud, would not want to be in that. Like they would not that you wanted to be in it, but they also wouldn't. No offense, Jeremy. <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't put their neck out for. And you, you do. We had a friend the other day text and say. Uh, you know, I'm I'm arguing with my brother-in-law about electric cars, and I need some messaging quick. And we we were like, "What?" <laughs> but then you were you you rose to the occasion there too. I resisted it dramatically, but the, he was apparently arguing that there are a lot of environmental problems with electric cars. So I don't know everything about electric cars. And I didn't really want to deal with this, but but then then it occurred to me that of course what he's doing is what everybody does is he's comparing electric cars to nothing. You don't get to compare them to nothing. Yeah, there are a lot of environmental problems with electric cars. There are a lot of environmental problems with the fact that we live in a car culture, and you know there's no perfect way to address that. But compared to the environmental problems with gas-powered cars, the problems with electric cars are much less. Yeah, it would be better if he became you know a monk and lived on top of a mountain, or if he at least like started walking everywhere. That would be better. People never want to compare the progress to the status quo. I mean, and this, I, I saw this tweet by Brian Cateman today. This totally reminds me. There should really be a rule in food journalism where every critique about plant-based meat must be followed by 99 critiques of factory farm meat. Exactly. Like they, they these articles about what's wrong with plant-based meat and whether it's your health, whether it's processed, whether it's uh, the environmental, whether it's not perfect. Like they're never done in the context of we're trying to fight an absolute monstrosity here, whether it's climate change or, or factory farming or animal suffering. And nobody will do what needs to be done in order to end it. So can't we completely in every way? So can't we at least look at the status quo that exists right now and compare it to that anyway? It's just so frustrating. I wish I was a better messenger. I wish I had had all of the answers to to give uh, in that moment. But I came up with something to say, which hopefully shut him up. Um, and then I then I got carried away and started talking about how the world's going to end anyway. And hopefully she stopped before she got to that part. But I wish I had the messaging skills of Ryuji Chua. Marianne, I think you're bananas. Like when I think of messaging skills. You are the first person that comes to my mind. Brian Cateman is the second person that comes to my mind. And Ryuji is, you know, also up there as well, because I was such a huge, giant Insta fan. So many animal people who wrote, who watched him on this incredible platform, speaking up for the fishes. We, we just became like Insta fans. And so totally totally in in awe of the fact that you got to interview him but let's let's let people hear that Ryuji Chua is a filmmaker who seeks to create a kinder world by connecting humans with non-human animals he currently works as a video producer at Surge Activism is an advisor for the vegan hacktivists they were on our henhouse too and was recently featured on the daily show with Trevor Noah to talk about animal rights and about his latest independent documentary, How Conscious Can a Fish Be? He'll be joining Marianne right after this. Did you know that Dr. Bronner's is more than just soap? 
That's right, the ethical personal care company that we all know and love now makes chocolate, my favorite food group. And not just any old chocolate. In true Dr. Bronner's fashion, this chocolate exemplifies ethical chocolate excellence and is sourced from regenerative, organic, and fair trade supply chains. How cool is that? And speaking of cool, just in time for the holidays, they have released an all new cool peppermint cream flavor. Oh, so good. I know when I think of Dr. Bronner's, peppermint is the first thing that comes to mind. So this is the perfect new addition to Magic All One Chocolate line, which already has several other chocolate flavors, including salted dark, roasted whole hazelnuts, crunchy hazelnut butter, salted whole almonds, salted almond butter, and smooth coconut praline. Yum. Now I want some chocolate, but when do I not want chocolate? What a great holiday gift these would make for your loved ones or for yourself, because treat yourself. Am I right? To find out more, go to www.drbronner.com. That's www.drbronner.com to grab yourself some chocolatey holiday cheer. Welcome to our hen house, Ryuji. Thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to have you because I saw your appearance on The Daily Show and I said, what is going on here? Because why were you on? How did you get so good at messaging? Why did they let you come on and talk about this stuff? It was ama- <laughs> It was an amazing piece. I think when I posted it, I said, this is a masterclass in, in vegan messaging. Thank you so much. I just want to start with it. We have a lot to talk about and a lot to talk about with your mm-hmm. videos and your goals in producing them. But let's start by talking about The Daily Show because I was blown away by it. What were your goals going in? Yeah, so it was really interesting. So the reason that I was invited onto The Daily Show was to talk about an independent documentary that I made called How Conscious Can a Fish Be? Really, it's not really that much of an independent documentary. I made it as like a YouTube video and just put it up. But then everyone started calling it a documentary. And then Trevor invited me and was like, oh, we'd like to talk about your documentary. So originally, I thought it was going to be this conversation about the documentary, you know, about the documentary is about fish and fish consciousness and intelligence and their capacity to feel pain and also what we do to them in the fishing industry. And so I thought that's what we're going to primarily discuss. And then I got to the green room and the producer walked in and it was like, oh, so Trevor is super excited to talk to you. He's really excited to talk to you about veganism and stuff. And so I didn't actually expect that the conversation was going to be mostly about animal rights more broadly and veganism. So originally my goals going in was, you know, to, to, to represent the, the documentary, say something that would be interesting and hopefully would make people think differently a little bit about, about fish in particular. But as soon as the conversation pivoted, you know, my, my goal when talking to people is always to represent the animals as best as I can. And so my goal was just to try to get people to see animals a little bit more differently, you know, not see them as a something, but as someone, and then try to make them think about how they might suffer a lot more than they might expect. That, that's kind of all that I was thinking. Yeah. Did this come come at you out of the cold? Like Trevor Noah's people just called you and said, do you want to be on The Daily Show to talk about your YouTube? Or like, was there some particular reason you got chosen to do this? I mean, it's a great piece. The video is great. But, you know, they don't usually want vegans on TV talking about oh, why no, they're no, vegan. Oh, no, no, for sure. Like, I, I, thought that it was, I thought that it was fake, like when I first got the email. <laughs> but yeah, they, they just reached out to me. And, and I looked at all the previous guests that had been on before me and... I saw that they're either actual celebrities or if they're, first of all, there are no documentary filmmakers that I could find at least. So that was a first thing that I was like, how, how can I be the first? That makes no sense. 
And then it's either celebrities or people who have, if they've done some work, it's been recognized. So usually the conversation goes, welcome to The Daily Show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, congratulations on your new Emmy nomination. You know, (laughs) sure I am sitting with like this video, this YouTube video with 10,000 views. So I was like, there's there's no way. But yeah, they just reached out to me. And after talking to the producer and talking to him a little bit, I I was just invited because apparently Trevor somehow stumbled upon my content and the the video and, and thought it was really interesting and I thought I'd I'd be a good guest and and just they just invited me. That is so cool. I like it's just so cool. It's just a crazy story. One of the things that I really liked about the way you did is he kept bringing it to and we're all used to this, the idea that you were judging people, which, you know, I think is not unfair. Like vegans do sort of judge other people, not in the sense that we're better people than they are. But for in this particular instance, we feel like what we're doing is better than participating in eating animals. But you just didn't let it go there. Why do you think people always want to go there, say, well, you're judging us, right? And why do you think it's important to kind of get out of that? That's a good question. I, I think that in general, people like to make things about themselves. Like we usually think of our, ourselves when we're in a conversation or just any situation. And to me, the reason why I try to veer away from that and the reason I don't think it's so important is because it kind of makes no difference for the animals, right? Like, I'm not interested in judging people because me judging people doesn't really help the animals in any way, shape, or form. And so to me, I just don't like talking about that because A, doesn't help. And and also, it's just like, I, I think it's just irrelevant when it comes to the conversation of talking about what we do to animals and changing the way we treat them and, and stuff like that, right? Because then it becomes a conversation about what you think about me. And I'm like, let, let's just stop talking about you and me. And let's just talk about the animals for a second. And whether or not I think or you think you are good or bad doesn't change the fact that when we take certain actions, those actions hurt animals. So, I, so that's why I just don't talk about it. I think it just doesn't matter. It was so effective. And I have to remember, it's hard not to fall into that. And and so many of the things you did on that, you always, always brought it back. Whatever that he said, you brought it back to the point of view of the animal, which which the animal who was being harmed, which was, I, I just thought, so powerful. Were there any questions he asked you that you were surprised by? Well, it sounds like in a way you were surprised by the entire interview. But was there anything in particular that stands out for you as like, wow. Yeah, for sure. He, he asked me one question about animals' capacity to feel pain and whether or not I thought that we were imposing, uh, we were humanizing them a little bit too much is basically the question that he was asking. And you, you can actually see in the interview, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's when he asked that. No, no, he said something else and, and I was like a little bit taken aback. But no, that, that was one question that I was a little bit surprised by and that I didn't fully feel prepared to, to answer. Not because I didn't know the answer, but just I, I just really did not expect that in, in that interview. So I don't feel like I, I was kind of like, oh my God, I'm not sure how to answer that. But yeah, I, I think I got through it anyways. Yeah, no, I thought you did a great job with it. it, it like he was compared, which I've seen, heard people do like, maybe they can feel pain, but does that mean they can suffer? I like, like, it just seems like dancing on the head of a pen to me, the way the way people theorize <laughs> how to get out of be having to feel bad about this. But I thought you did it extremely effectively. So let's talk a little bit about this video, since apparently... The video got to Trevor Noah and really had had a huge impact on him. So why fish? Why did you just... Well, of course, you made videos about many things. Maybe we should start by saying that. And then this one was your video on fish, but it was one of your more elaborate ones, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. It's the biggest project I've worked on so far. And why did you decide to focus on fish? So the reason why is just because I, I just thought it was a really important issue that I thought was underrepresented even by many animal rights activists, at least in in my personal circle. 
And the thing with fish is that at the same time, they're the animals that we kill in the largest numbers by very far for food. But they're also the ones that we protect the least from cruelty and suffering, both culturally and legally. And so there's a huge potential to make the world better for fish, far more than for other animals. I mean, we can improve pretty much infinitely for other animals as well. But for fish in particular, the issue is, is so bad, and yet we care so little about it. I wanted to try to bridge that gap a little bit. And I found that in the animal rights community, we often say things like, which I've said too in conversation, you know, we say things like, well, studies show that fish feel pain and research shows that this and that. And I realized that I'm pretty sure that 90% of us who say this have no idea what this research is. I mean, I, I had no idea what it was. And so I just thought it was really important for me to try to understand the evidence that suggests that the claims I'm making are true. Because at the end of the day, that's what makes something true is actually understanding the evidence. And so I set out on this journey to try to understand the evidence. And as I was doing that, I thought to myself, I should probably make this into a resource that people can consume. Because at the time, my my, my first jumping off point, let's say, was a book called What a Fish Knows by Jonathan Balcombe, which is an incredible book. But the thing with books in general is that they're kind of hard to read and a lot of people don't like reading. And I, I encourage people to read and I think it's it's incredible to read. But I knew that just having this information in a book wouldn't get out to as many people as it could. And also I found that the way that the book was written, it was it was great, but it wasn't so engaging to me that I just could not put the book down. Like I would get bored at certain points. Not, not that the book is not great or anything, but it's just for me personally, I was just reading it and I was like, man, like some things I would have to read like two or three times in order to fully understand them. And so I just wanted to try to make this information more more accessible. And I'm not, I'm not claiming that my video reached more people than the book. I'm pretty sure that it didn't. But at least I wanted to try to make it in a format that people who might not want to read a book could still have access to the information and understand the evidence that suggests that fish feel, think, and suffer. And so that that's why I decided to create this. Yeah, no, I totally hear you. I, I don't think Trevor Noah would have sat down and read the book. And he happened to come across the video. So there you go. Point point proven. So <laughs> let's talk let's talk a little bit about the content of the video because you really did do a good job of, of putting together some of the science. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot more science out there, but you kind of succinctly of gave us gave us some of the science to, and it was very convincing. And we all say all the time, of course, fish feel pain, but we don't know any of the science. But it's really not controversial among scientists. So you make that point over and over. Why do you think that point has not made it into the mainstream? Trevor Noah, who's a pretty bright guy, seemed to think at least in the beginning of your interview, seem to think it was a crazy notion that fish feel pain. I think a lot of people feel that way, that that information really has had a lot of trouble sinking into mainstream minds. Do you think it's because they're fish? That's a good question. I mean, I, for, first of all, I, I don't know if that's the position that Trevor himself was holding, because the way that he phrased the question was he said, you know, a lot of people would say this. So I actually think he was pretty sympathetic towards Ultimately, uh, the idea yeah. Of fish feeling pain and stuff yeah, like that, especially since he saw like it and, and he, yeah. he invited me and stuff. So, so I, I think he was very sympathetic, in fact. But yeah, I mean, for me personally, I think the reason that I at least did not care about fish for the majority of my life is just that, first of all, they're so different from us, and I didn't spend a lot of time with them. And if I did spend time with them, it would be in an aquarium, and I would see them as these pretty shapes and colors to marvel at, kind of like the wax in a lava lamp. Or I would go fishing and I would see them as toys to play with. Or I'd go to the restaurants and just see this piece of what I perceived as food at the time. And so because of that, we don't get to see fish 
as individuals. And even if we do spend time with them and observe them and try to look into their eyes and see a someone, not a something, they're so different to us, the way that they move and express themselves. I mean, they, they live in water. It's, it's so far from how we act that I think it's it's hard to relate to. It is just so easy to to see them as a something. And I think it doesn't help that we exploit them so much in our society right now. And obviously, when we do something harmful to a certain animal, it's hard to reconcile that with the idea that they think and feel and suffer just like dogs and cats. And so I think that it's just easier to believe that, well, none of that is true. And they're these primitive, stupid animals. Yeah, I I really want to get into a little bit more about fish. But I think that the point you just brought up is such an interesting one, because I always like to talk about what is it that keeps people from recognizing this this nightmare that has been created in the world. You know, kind people, sympathetic people. Do you think one of the things is that it's so bad? It's gotten so big. We do so much harm that people just, to acknowledge it is too painful. It could be, but I I think also most people have no idea how bad it actually is in the first place. So so I, I really don't know, but I think it has a lot to do with how we spend very little time with them and how they're very different from us more than anything. Because I don't think that people don't want to acknowledge how fish are sentient because of how bad it is, because I don't think people see it as very bad. Or in fact, from a welfare perspective, I don't even think most people think about it at all. Maybe from a from an environmental perspective, people think, oh, we're, we're emptying the ocean. But I don't think people are thinking, oh, the, you know, the fishing industry must be so painful for the fish who are being fished. I, I don't think there a lot of people are thinking that at all. So yeah, I'm not sure. But at the end of the day, I, I think that, you know, and, and maybe the reason why I made the documentary is because I believe that one of the reasons also that people don't think that fish feel pain and stuff like that is because they're unfamiliar with the evidence. I mean, there's no one who has ever come to them and tried to challenge their perspective on who fish are. And so that's also one of the reasons why I wanted to do that. Yeah. No, I'm really glad you have. Though, to be fair to, to everybody in the movement, too, people do try to get to people with this information and you're trying really hard. And sometimes it is, it's a big job. So thank God for Trevor Noah. One of the points you were making in the video, which I thought was so compelling, is that one of the reasons we don't see fish as intelligent, and we do say, see, say, chimpanzees or other animal, you know, other of our beloved, even though we're really horrible to them too, other of our beloved, mm-hmm. close to us animals, is because our intelligence was designed to solve the same sorts of problems that chimpanzees have in the world. So we recognize their intelligence, and you point out that fish intelligence was was designed to solve different problems. So, you know, being humans, we're like, ah, <laughs> that's no big deal. Is that <laughs> is that right? And can you kind of give an example of those sure. kinds of mistakes that we make about, about seeing fish and not being impressed? Yeah, absolutely. So a simple definition of intelligence is the capacity to solve problems. And most often we define it as not the capacity to solve problems in general, but the capacity to solve problems that are specifically important to humans. And given that definition of intelligence, no wonder other animals are not intelligent. Why would they be as good at solving problems that are important to us than us? They didn't evolve in the same environment. So for example, with fish, they evolved in the ocean in a very different environment to us. And so throughout their lives, they have to solve very different types of problems to the ones that we have to solve. And so to them, it might not be essential or important that they can solve quadratic equations or do long division or stuff like or have the capacity to conceptualize and do these things. In fact, they survived for hundreds of millions of years more than we have. I can't do quadratic equations either. 
Oh, yeah, I, I completely forgot. So, you know, but yeah, I mean, they, they have lived in the ocean for hundreds of millions of years before humans even existed without that ever having been a problem. But I, I think the issue comes when we take this definition of intelligence, then say that other animals are not as intelligent as us, and then use that as a reason to think that their lives are, are less valuable. I think an example to, to kind of make this point a little clearer would be to think about salmon. So salmon are the fish that I ate the most out of any fish. I really, really loved eating salmon. My mom's Japanese is huge in Japanese culture. Like, I really, really loved it. But it turns out that they're really fascinating animals. And we look at a salmon, we're like, they're stupid, right? But in fact, they do quite a lot of things that are very, very impressive. So they're born in these freshwater streams. And as they grow older and they hit their version of puberty, let's say, they go downstream and they go towards the ocean. When they do this, they're organs change to be able to live in salt water. It's actually quite an impressive transformation. Anyways, they get to the ocean and they spend two to seven years in that range, depending on what type of salmon they are in the ocean, just moving up the food chain, having a really tough life in general, and just trying to survive. And then one day, it's time for them to reproduce. And when it's that time, they turn around and they go all the way back and they show up sometimes in the literal stream that they were born in. They go home. And now this is absolutely incredible. It's the equivalent of, so I, I was born in a hospital outside of Paris. And imagine you dropped me in the middle of Poland and you asked me, so now walk back, not just back to like Paris, the city where you're from, but to the doorstep of the hospital that you were born in. And I have to do this without any street signs or even streets or Google Maps or anything like that. It's just like wide open ocean. This is what salmon are doing. And the way that they do it is that they have these specialized cells in their bodies that can sense the Earth's magnetic field. And they use that to navigate back to the general vicinity of where they're from. And from there, they pick up on these subtle chemical cues in the water as they're swimming upstream in the, in the river to try and figure out where exactly they come from. So that's the equivalent of smelling is, is basically how we would perceive it, right? So it's kind of as if, imagine I somehow get back from Poland to Paris and now I'm like, okay, let me smell the wind and figure out where the hospital is. Like, that's literally what they're doing. And while they're going upstream, back to the stream where they're from, they face all these obstacles like bears and waterfalls. And when they encounter these waterfalls, they will jump up these waterfalls. And the highest jumps of salmon rival the highest jumps of dolphins, kangaroos, and is way higher than the human high jump world record. So that's a pretty impressive physical feat to throw on top of all of that. But in any case, a salmon can navigate better than I ever could. Like I can barely show up to the grocery store without using maps in a city that I don't live in, you know? So that being the case, we never look at that and say, well, salmon are so much more intelligent than us because they can navigate better than we ever could. We say we are so much more intelligent than them because we can solve quadratic equations. And so that way of seeing intelligence, I think really limits us from fully appreciating the cognitive abilities of, of different animals that would be really fascinating, but that might also help us see them more like a someone and, and not a something. Yeah, I, it's, it's so true. And just as you were talking about it, I was thinking that when we talk about animal intelligence. And, you know, a lot has evolved since in the past 50 years, but still, particularly when we're talking about animals like fish who are very unfamiliar to us, all these things that they do 
that are obviously require a lot of intelligence in this specific sphere of their behavior. We call it instinct, as if it's completely mindless, as if as if there's not this combination between their innate talent and a conscious negotiation of the world. I mean, each time they hit one of those waterfalls or see one of those bears or or do something that on the way is is an obstacle in their way, they have to negotiate that specific obstacle. They can't possibly have a mind that's pre-programmed to do that. It's the combination of 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 a certain amount of pre-programming which all creatures have to live in their environment and consciousness, a conscious negotiation. And we leave that part out, don't we, when it comes to a lot of animals, especially fish. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I think so as well. You know, so much of the problem for vegan messaging is not conveying the intelligence. I think that's a hugely important piece of it. But then you also have to convey the horror of of what it is happening to animals. And you have to do that in a way that avoids shutting people down and making them turn it off and, and go watch TV or something. So how do you work at striking that balance? So that that's a really good question. And it's something that I think about a lot. And the reason I think about it is because I have shown slaughterhouse footage to more people than I can count. And a shocking number of those people look at the footage and kind of don't care that much. And what they're looking at is is videos of cows, pigs, and chickens receiving treatment that is so cruel. Like, I, I don't even think we can understand what it's like to be in their position. And yet they're kind of like, I don't really care. And the thought experiment that I would always do with myself is I would think, what if instead of cows, pigs, chickens, or fish, these animals were dogs or cats? People would be outraged. In fact, people would have to see much less to be completely outraged and not say, not, not just say something like, oh, we need to treat them better, but this needs to stop yesterday. And so I think one of the reasons why slaughterhouse footage does not get to people sometimes is because to a large extent, we still see animals like cows, pigs, chickens, and fish not as a someone, but as a something. And so that's why I think it's so important to challenge the stereotypes we have of those animals and try to communicate that alongside the horror. Like, it's not just enough to show how bad these animals have it, in my opinion, but I think we also have to show that these animals are the same as dogs and cats in all the ways that matter. And so that's why, to me, that, that's why the, the, the entire structure of the, the documentary on fish is that is I spend the first like two thirds of it trying to challenge our stereotypes of fish. And then I talk about the horrible things that we do to them, because I think that wh why would you care about the horrible things that we do to an animal if you essentially see them like a vegetable? It doesn't really make sense. So that's why I think that's ex extremely important. I think it's a underrated way to make people care about the things that we do to animals that I think I don't think we should take for granted that people already care about cows, pigs, and chickens. I mean, some people do, but a lot of people don't. And so I think that it's really important for us to start there by challenging, you know, people. I, I mean, I sound like a broken record, but it's, it's because like I I really believe in this, and I, I just been thinking about it so much, you know, to challenge the stereotypes we have of them and to try to make people not just see them like dogs and cats, but to make them feel about them like dogs and cats. Like I think that if everyone felt the way that a lot of people feel about dogs and cats, but about fish and cows and chickens and turkeys and other farmed animals, then the world would be a lot better place. So that's why I try to communicate that in my advocacy. Yeah, I I think that. So in your in a, in the goal in a particular video would be to set the whole question up as what are these animals like and try to convey that. And then as you did in in the fish documentary, at the end sort of reveal to people 
these terrible things that we're doing to them. But the the setup is really who who these animals are. And you manage to do it with fish. I mean, if you could do it with fish, you could probably do it with, with almost anybody because they are the hardest animals to communicate about. But you really do. I mean, in a lot of it, it was with science, which is, is really exciting. I think that makes sense because just showing them slaughterhouse footage, they shut down. Either if they're with you, maybe they still watch it and say, I don't care, some of them. But, you know, if they're home, they just turn it off. <laughs> it's very easy for people to turn it all off. All right. I also want to talk about your TEDx talk. Your TEDx talk, you recorded it a while ago, but it just came, As my understanding is it just came online. It's so good. Is that true? That it Thank was, you so much. It, it was from a year or so ago, and then, and then it just got published? Yeah, about, about 10 months ago. It was like last November. So by the time you were listening to this, it was over a year ago that, that I recorded that. So it's really blending, which is so hard to do, environmental messaging and animal rights messaging. I mean, if you agree with me that mm -hmm. environmental, particularly climate, focusing on climate. But you manage to take that very always abstract subject, the way environmentalists talk about the environment, is as if it's out there somewhere and doesn't really have anybody living in it or anybody that you have a particular interest in. And you you turn it into, as as all your messaging does, focusing on the individual. Is that is that Was that your goal? Yeah, that was my goal. I, I think that's, for me, when I first started learning about the climate crisis, I, I thought it was about trees and oceans and melting glaciers and greenhouse gas emissions. I, in, in other words, I thought it was about the planet. And that's often the messaging that we have, right? We say we need to, quote, save the planet, for example. And what I didn't realize was that the only reason all those things are important is because they lead to the suffering or well-being of individuals who feel, think, and suffer, whether they be human or non-human. Right? That, that's like the whole point. And so the ana one analogy that I give in the talk is I say, well, what if the climate was drastically changing on a different planet, like Venus, for example, would we care? And I don't think we would. And I don't think we should because it doesn't affect, th there's no one there to feel the consequences of that change. Right. Another analogy that might help bring that home would be to say something like, you know, if there's a house and is getting destroyed by a storm, it only matters if there's someone living in that house. If it's a house in an abandoned village or something like that, then it doesn't really matter that that house is getting destroyed because it, no one is suffering as a result of that, that house being destroyed. But if someone, if a family lives in that house, then it is very much an issue. And so the argument that I make in the, in the talk is that this is more or less obvious for humans. We got this under control, right? We understand that we're doing this for, for future generations and even people now who live in parts of the world who are feeling the effects of the climate crisis. But when it comes to animals, we think we have this, this, I, this position that it's the individuals that matter because when we think about the environment and, and how it affects, you know, environmental destruction, how it affects animals, we think about a polar bear who's starving, we think about a koala who's burning alive in a bushfire, uh, or we think ab about a, a turtle who has a plastic straw stuck in his nose. But when we talk about them, at least in kind of like a mainstream place, we use words like species extinction, biodiversity, and ecosystems. And these things are important. But talking about these things is very similar to talking about the climate crisis and thinking that it's about the, the forests and the oceans and the glaciers. Yes, those things are important, but not because they're inherently important, but because they help individuals. And so my argument was that if we are going to care for animals because of the climate crisis, we should care because it's hurting individuals and not because it's it's hurting species or ecosystems or biodiversity. Well, yes, we should look at those things, but we should look at those things and care about those things if they lead 
to destroying those things lead to to the suffering of individuals. If not, then I don't think we should be attached to those things at all. I I just totally love that messaging. The constant ability to talk about the world in abstractions, I think, is so harmful. And I just just to get make it about me for a second. <laughs> I've always resented when people <laughs> consider animal law. You know, I teach animal law. So when, when people consider animal law kind of a subset of environmental law, I would say, no, environmental law is a subset of animal law. It's the consciousness that matters. It's We live in this world of consciousness. It's a miracle. Like all of these individual consciousnesses, that's what matters. And the environment serves that and promotes it and, and creates the place for it to exist. But but it's all the consciousness that, that, well, I've said that eight times now. So why can you see this when others don't? Like, why do people insist on seeing the environment and the climate? You know, people talk about polar bears, but they don't really focus on that one polar bear who is starving. They talk about, we won't have polar bears anymore. Why do people always go to the species, to the abstraction, and you don't? What do you think is the difference? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure why other people think the way that they think. I, I have no idea. But... The reason that I think the way that I think is because I think the most important thing is the perspective of individuals. And I think that what matters most is in in any situation where we're thinking about anything is thinking about this issue or this event from the point of view of the individuals who suffer. And I try to ask myself the question, what would I want if I was in that position? So for example, you think about a polar bear who's starving, right, as a result of the climate crisis. In this situation, the the being who is suffering is that polar bear. And I would ask myself, if I was in the position of that polar bear, what would I want? And what I would want is I would want for my suffering to end, no, no matter what that looks like. And I would not be thinking something like, oh, like, I'm worried about my species. Like, there's no animal in the world who cares about species extinction. They just care about their own individual well-being. And again, I'm not saying this to say that species don't matter. It's like, I'm just saying that the reason that species extinction would matter is because individuals matter, not the other way around, or not like species as a as a thing is not inherently valuable, is, is what I'm saying. And the reason why is because I consider it from the point of view of the one or the ones who are suffering. Yeah. One thing, I'm not sure this really conveys it probably, but one thing I usually say to my students is species is an idea. It's not a thing. <laughs> like it's exactly, it's a way yeah. that we think about the world and a way that we organize the world. But it's not real in a material sense. But I don't know whether that gets through either. It's just the thought in my head. And you seem to have, have taken that thought and developed it better than most anybody. What about your work? I, I, I saw in your bio that you do work with surge activism and also with vegan hacktivists. But do you do most of your work just on your own? Is this, is this an individual project or are you working with others on it? Uh, no, so the fish thing was completely independent. I, I had like two illustrators that are hired to do some of the illustrations because I can't draw to save my life. But um, it was 100% led by me, but it's, it's something I did on the side because I, I do work full time besides the project that I do, the projects that I do independently. So yeah. So when you, some of your videos are collaborative and some of your videos are individual. Can you talk a little bit about, we've just covered some of the real high points and the big one, which you got on The Daily Show for. But you've made lots of videos. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other topics that you've tackled? Yes, I always try to tackle topics that I think are going to make the world a better place. And I've chosen animal rights as like the the place to be in. But I, I think, to be honest, like a lot of the other videos that I've worked on, the topics are pretty generic. It's just things like, you know, exposing various industries that hurt animals and, and re- really mostly that. 
for a long time, I, I just did that and then talking a lot about kind of like the rational arguments behind why people might want to be vegan and try to debunk certain arguments against, against veganism and stuff like that. So a, a lot of that is, is, is stuff that's been said, you know, a million times. But I, I made a lot of content like that, both for myself and for others as well. But I, I think more recently, I've tried to shift towards telling stories and talking about things that are maybe a little bit more difficult to understand and topics that take a little bit more research. It's because I, I think a lot of the other topics, like, you know, what, what happens to animals in certain industries has been said a million times. The resources are out there. But I think something like understanding the evidence that explains why fish feel pain is something that's just not as readily available. And so that's the kind of thing that I want to try to tackle, hopefully in a way that's easy to digest and, and entertaining. You know, we live in an incredibly, bizarrely divided world right now. And it seems like nothing can bring us together. Do you think of animals as having potential as an issue that can bring people from who, who are not aligned on other issues necessarily? Is it our last possible? Yeah. I don't want to call it bipartisan because I don't even want to put it in that political framework, but just something that can reach people from all different ends of this crazy spectrum we seem to be on. It could or it could not. I, I think it could depend on well many things, for example, like how it's framed and stuff like that. But definitely things like, for example, if there was an issue revolving around things that we do to dogs, I think that that could bring people together because people love dogs no matter what, really, like most people do. And so that's that. But for example, like, I, I don't know, like what we do to farm animals, maybe not, because I think that it could be a similar thing where we look at these innocent animals being treated horribly and everyone comes together to save them. Or it could be a thing where you know, for example, animal rights is viewed as this ultra liberal issue. And so people who are conservative don't want to have anything to do with it because it's just a liberal thing to care about this in the first place. So, I mean, it probably depends. Yeah, it would be nice because we could certainly get more done and we seem to have trouble getting anything done. All right. I asked you this question already and you did answer it, but I'm just going, be, but it, it was kind of preliminarily. You answered it Specific to what we were talking about then, which is that people just don't, a lot of people just don't have the information about what's happening to animals. But other than that, for people who do have the information, how do you make sense of this central question? Why people, those who care about animals, which I think is most people, I mean, most people would not deliberately harm an animal. There are the psychopaths out there and, you know, whatever, but most people and, and who do kind of know that it's bad. Why do they continue to contribute to their exploitation. One of the thoughts I've had of late is that people really don't believe that their individual actions can make a difference. Do you think that's, I, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but that's one idea. Do you have that? Do you agree with that? Or do you have other ideas? Of, what is this block? <laughs> we all know that vegan food is good now. Like it, you can totally live really easily. What is this block that people have that really wonderful people who are doing so much good in their lives and kind of do know that there's something wrong? Like Trevor Noah. Why don't they just stop? Do they think it's pointless? Yeah, I mean, it probably depends on the individual. I mean, like, there's probably a million reasons why people don't stop. I mean, for example, one reason might be something along the lines of, like I said earlier, they just don't see cows, pigs, and chickens the way that they see dogs and cats. I'm pretty sure that a lot of people, if they realized all of a sudden that the burgers they've been eating and loving their entire lives were actually made from the bodies of puppies and kittens, would stop eating burgers overnight. And the same with any animal products. And so the fact that they don't stop, given that it's from other animals, just show that I think they don't quote farm animals in the same light as we do the animals that we love at home. So that, that could be one reason. Another reason could be some form of cognitive dissonance where people's self-image of caring about animals and loving animals does not align with their behavior of 
eating and consuming animal products. And because there's this dissonance, they feel a need to change one or the other. And one of the theories behind cognitive dissonance and the way that humans behave is we're going to take the path of least resistance. And in this case, it's much easier to change our beliefs rather than our actions. So it's much easier to believe that animals don't suffer that much or that animals don't feel pain, like cows don't feel pain the way that dogs do. It's much easier to believe that than to, to change habits. Because at the end of the day, changing any habit is, is very difficult. And for me, like it, this is also something that wasn't really relatable to me for the longest time because I'm one of those people that when I found out how bad animals had it, I became vegan overnight. So I didn't even know the word vegan. I just knew that animals in the meat, dairy, and egg industry suffered way more than I was okay with. And so I stopped overnight. And so it was never really relatable to me why people would take a long time. But recently, I've, I've myself tried to change something big in my life where I try to make exercise a big part of my life because I realized that, well, it's probably a very important thing. Like health is it's probably pretty important. So <laughs> I wanted to do that. And for the majority of the pandemic, I, I was at home and, and didn't really exercise much at all. So for me, like it was it was a big change in my life that I, that I had to make. And I realized, well, this is actually not very easy to do. And I'm sure it's still much easier than doing something like changing everything that you eat at every single meal. So I think that sometimes we underestimate how hard it can be for people to change. But also I think that when people don't want to change, the relationship or the thing that I would think about is that I, I think their why is just not strong enough. At a certain point, if you have a reason why you want to do something and that reason is extremely important to you or you perceive it as extremely important, then you're going to figure out a way to make that change. But if it's just not that important, then you're just not going to make that change. And so another way that I think about it is that I think that's the, the reason that a lot of us change at the end of the day, and, and maybe you can confirm if this is your experience, but this is my experience, is that like we want to, at the end of the day, we're emotional creatures as human beings, and we want to do the easiest thing or the thing that hurts the least. So when you find out how much animals suffer as a result of the meat, dairy, and egg industries, that kind of hurts, and you feel bad about that. But then you think about it, and you're like, well, one solution would be for me to stop consuming these products. But if I did that, that would mean that I could never eat the burgers I love. And what am I going to eat for breakfast? I eat eggs every morning. And how am I ever going to have pizza again? And ice cream and this and that. And, and how am I going to celebrate Christmas and Thanksgiving and blah, blah, blah. Right. And you think about that. And that also hurts. And then you compare, maybe not consciously, but you compare those two things. The pain of knowing how much animals suffer and the pain of living your life without ever eating the foods that you love. And whichever one is less painful, I think, is what we're going to do. So for me, it was very clear that no matter how much I would miss out on food, it's not even a conversation. Like, the the pain, like me living the rest of my life, knowing how much animals suffer for the food that I eat, is so great that even if I could never eat my favorite foods ever again, that pain would be way greater and so I just decided to stop. But I think that for a lot of other people, they think about what happens to animals. They're like, yeah, I feel kind of bad about it. But, you know, maybe they don't see, again, like cows, pigs, and chickens the way that they see dogs and cats. So they're like, well, how bad can it really be? Then they go to the grocery store and they see pictures of happy animals on pastures. And they're like, well, it really can't be that bad. And then they think about, well, but if I can never eat a burger again, that's basically going to ruin my life. Like, how am I ever going to enjoy a meal ever again? I can't do that. And so they just don't do that. And... So, yeah, I, th I think that's definitely one of the reasons that yeah. some people know the information, but then don't change. I totally hear you. Well, also, I mean, people feel like 
Why should I have to change? That's not going to change the world. So that's another reason counting against changing. And I guess people don't realize that vegan food is fine or they really don't think it's fine. I mean, maybe I'm just not enough of a foodie to really care, but but people do seem to have like, oh, I know the other thing I wanted to say also, like when you give up eating animals for animal rights reasons, as opposed to environmental or health reasons, it's kind of an all or nothing thing. Like not that everybody does, there are vegetarians or whatever, but they just don't think about the, they have blocks about the eggs and milk issues. They just don't think about them. But when you decide every individual matters and therefore I don't want to contribute to their harm, that's pretty much why you have to give them up all. Whereas with environmentalism, you know, you can do it a little, cut down on your meat with your health, you can cut down. But animal rights really does feel like, okay, once I do this, it's done. I will never eat a hamburger again. I will never have Thanksgiving turkey again. Like, that's it. I've changed my entire life. I can't go back. It's black or white. And I think that really might get, I don't know how to fix that, but I think that might get in people's way. Well, I could obviously talk about this topic for weeks. Really appreciate your insights. You're obviously a terrific communicator. We could all learn a lot from your messaging. Thanks so much for sharing it with us today, Ryuji. Did you want to talk about, I, I know that you had a video coming out about greyhound racing. Did you just want to mention that? Sure. So along with an organization called Faunalytics, which is a fantastic animal rights organization that... Yes, we're very familiar with Faunalytics. Love them. Yeah, yeah. So for anyone who's unfamiliar, they just put together these resources for animal advocates. So they, you know, they summarize research and make it accessible. And they really do fantastic, fantastic work. And so I teamed up with them to make a sort of expose on the greyhound racing industry. And it's something that I didn't know a lot about going into it. But, you know, I've, I've been researching it for the past eight months or so. Or at the time it came out, I, I worked on this piece for about eight months. And I went down this rabbit hole and, and the things I discovered were really, really, really shocking. And so we put together this thing talking about the history of greyhound racing and how it came together and then talking about the problems with greyhound racing and how greyhound racing hurts animals. Um, and I think this piece is particularly important in a way because greyhound racing is one of those issues where we are hurting animals, but we actually are seeing it come to an end. And, you know, it's down now. And I think that now that it's down, it's, it's time for us to, to kick it until it until it dies, Hopefully. to be quite honest. So, yeah, so you can watch that if you want. It's on the Faunalytics website. It's called Run to Death, the Rise and Fall of Greyhound Racing. That's really helpful. I totally agree with you. This is winnable. Greyhound Racing is winnable and it's it would be nice to have a win. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today on our hen house, Ryuji. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure for me as well. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. Our first story is from Watt Agnet. And it's just stupid. <laughs> I don't know exactly. I don't exactly know what it means. It's just so stupid. This animal free food purchase won't save the planet. And uh, this is by one Terrence O'Keefe, who is Watt's, the, the site's content director. And all right, so he heard about this this chocolate bar. 
apparently it's from some subsidiary of Mars, so it's from a big company. It's called CO2CO, and it's animal-free, and, and he decided to order one because he's been doing research on net zero pledges, and uh, he, he wanted to find out. He, he stumbled across this and wanted to find out more about it. And it's only $1.99, which is really, you know, pretty reasonable if it's a high-end chocolate bar. I don't know. He thought he would do a, a taste test and compare it to uh, another chocolate bar. He ordered it, and it, it arrived. He thought it would just, like, arrive in the mail. I don't know. But apparently, they wrapped it in this incredibly elaborate packaging. Norm they probably don't normally get orders for one chocolate bar. I don't know. But it does seem really stupid. He said, I thought that the packaging was a little excessive for one chocolate bar, but at least no cow flatulence was released into the atmosphere in the making of this candy bar. Like, what is his point here? What is he trying to provide? <laughs> like, this company is, is, like, it doesn't matter if you release cow flatulence because this company uses too much packaging. It's just so stupid. <laughs> I don't know. I like my chocolate bar in solid form as much as the next guy, but I do think this packaging was a little excessive. As a result, he felt that the packaging overkill outweighed any possible reduction in greenhouse gas emissions because real milk wasn't used to make the bar. Like, what is your point? <laughs> like, is it that because they're using a lot of packaging, we shouldn't worry about about cow flatulence, as he calls it. And I suspect that a little cow flatulence has less impact on greenhouse gas emissions than the amount of fiber from trees that it took to make the packaging. I will recycle all of the paper and cardboard. Well, good for you. So it won't be a total waste. But the folks making CO2 COA might want to rethink the method of distribution if they really want to save the planet. What is your point, Terrence? What is your point? People don't think clearly. I think that's one of the the, the things that's become so obvious, especially in the past few years, people people just think around in circles like you have no point to make here. All right. Sorry. I know that was kind of stupid, but but the next one makes up for it by being terrifying. This is also from Watt Poultry facing a new normal with avian flu. Even the title is chilling because they're apparently acknowledging that avian flu is you know here to stay. Are they thinking of getting rid of the poultry industry? Of course not. Of course not. We wouldn't do that. So what are they thinking? Well, this article kind of reveals that they don't have a lot of thoughts, sadly, uh, but not surprisingly. And it's looking more and more likely. Oh, this is by one Austin Alonzo. It's looking more and more likely highly pathogenic avian influenza will be a constant active threat for the U.S. poultry industry. Well, I think we're there. I mean, considering that the millions and millions of birds who have been killed uh, this year because of avian flu, yeah, they, they cannot control this. They don't know what to do about it. It's overwhelming them. And, you know, because they, they, what they do is so cheap, they're still managing to keep the price of these birds low in spite of, because they can just reproduce them for so little money the way they treat them. But it, it's really becoming insane. It's unbelievable, too. I'm sure you feel the same way that this is this doesn't get more press. It's a huge story. All right. The current H5N1 HPAI, I guess that's what we call it, outbreak is defined by its longevity. The disease survived in wild bird populations and endured through summer and into the new year. 
Turkey and egg prices are up due to commercial infections and associated depopulations, which is, of course, what they call killing uh, in unbelievably horrific ways. Not that they're not, I mean, slaughter is pretty unbelievably horrific. So these birds don't have much of a choice, but, but depopulation, as they call it, when they turn up the heat and, and let them, let them suffocate to death. Uh, yeah, it doesn't get much worse than that. One observer noted in the prior outbreak that humans played a significant role in spreading the disease from farm to farm and barn to barn. They liked to pretend at the time that it was activists, uh, you know, <laughs> like, like it was all about biosecurity. That's why active, it was so terrible when activists went in and filmed what they were doing. But, you know, it's obviously not, not just activists who are walking in and out of these barns. They don't have a lot of employees, but they do have a few. He actually acknowledges this time it's more likely the disease is arriving directly from wild birds shedding the virus. Well, that seems entirely possible. Um, this is, according to him, good and bad. Aren't you glad to know there's a little good in here? Regulators, integrators, and farmers worked hard and wised up to enhance their biosecurity, and it's proven with less disease transmission by humans. All right. So his idea of good news is that is that because of biosecurity, which is their excuse for keeping activists out, well, one of their many excuses for keeping activists out, it, it's not being spread as much by humans, but it's being spread exponentially either by humans, and he's wrong, or, or by other birds. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for the moment where they suggest we just get rid of all birds. On the other hand, there are apparent holes in farm biosecurity defense. The disease, disease is running right through. So there, there's no good news here. <laughs> Like they tried something and it didn't work. That's their, his idea of good news. According to him, poultry stakeholders already showed a strong response and increased their biosecurity after 2015. However, individual farmers and technical staff, as well as integrated poultry companies in the government, will need to put their heads together once again to address this renewed threat. Yeah, what you did didn't work. Whether you were wrong about what the cause was, which I wouldn't be surprised at, or you just... Just it just evaded your. Uh, it just found a new way of transmission. Who knows? But it doesn't work. This is a huge, huge problem. Does he have any answer? Uh, no. He just says the domestic poultry industry must consider this in its long-term planning. Well, duh. And then he he makes a um, a, a nod to questions should be raised about vaccination against avian influenza and what it would look like. Would that measure ever make sense in the U.S.? Only time can tell. That's his idea of a solution. I think they do do vaccination in, in other countries. They vaccinate each of the birds. Unbelievable. Stop doing this to these birds. Just stop. Do you think they're listening? All right. Our final story is a doozy. You might have heard of this one. This is from the Washington Post. TikTok liver king touted raw organ meat diet. He also took steroids. This is about this guy. His name is Brian Johnson. And apparently he had a huge, huge following on TikTok. I, you know, I'm not on TikTok. I, I probably should be. I know it's aging me out, but there's only so much I can take, you know, even for you. All right. This, this starts off. This is by Teddy Amenabar and Anahad O'Connor. The self-proclaimed liver king, a muscular and often shirtless TikTok star named Brian Johnson, amassed millions of followers, millions of followers, by promoting a, quote, ancestral diet of, get, just wait for this, beef brains, bull testicles, and raw animal livers. Oh, and it turns out he's not that healthy. What a shocker. I, I, did I mention before that we found out recently that people are stupider than we even had imagined? 
But recently, Johnson posted a different kind of viral video, an apology. Johnson admitted to taking anabolics. I mean, if you look at this guy, like he might as well have steroids tattooed across his forehead. He admitted to taking anabolic steroids, something which he had repeatedly denied in the past. Of course, he did this because he was outed. Uh, like, apparently, he made a mistake. And there was a private email in which he described his steroid regimen. That was pretty stupid of you. But maybe all maybe those bull testicles were affecting your brain. And so the, his steroid regimen included a litany of drugs and hormones, including regular injections of powerful anabolic steroids, such as Winstrol, Decadurabolin and testosterone cipionate, as well as, um, I don't know why I'm reading this. <laughs> I assume you don't want to go look them up. As well as omnitrope, a form of human growth hormone. Oh, hard to believe that he might be sick. Oh my God. In an interview with GQ this year, he claimed that his business ventures have brought in more than $100 million a year. Of course, that's his claim. But even if that's only half true, like even if it's a millionth true, are you joking? All right. Well, that would only be $100 if it was a million too. So that wouldn't be that surprising. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. So people actually bought this. 1.7 million and 3.6 million followers on Instagram and TikTok. He was on, on all these podcasts, you know, really popular ones, um, unlike ours. <laughs> he, he was never on our hen house. I want to assure you of that. And uh, his diet consisted largely of organ and muscle meats, organic pastured egg yolks, bone broth, full raw full fat milk and cheese, fermented vegetables, and wild caught fish eggs. I'm feeling a little nauseous even just reading that. Experts say the characterization of an ancestral diet as consisting largely or solely of meat is misleading and, and inaccurate. It is good that this article goes into the more general subject of this idea that our ancestors only ate dead animals, or that current modern hunter-gatherer societies survive mostly on eating animals. That's just not true. One of the reasons for human success in taking over the planet, which, you know, is not such a great thing for the planet, but I digress, um, was that human, as this article points out, humans evolved to eat a wide variety of foods, including many high-carbohydrate foods like fruits, vegetables, starchy plants, and honey. And it turns out, as we all know, that you can live with, like, it, humans evolved to eat animals, yes, and became able to eat animals, yes. But you don't have to eat animals, like, whereas, whereas you do have to eat fruits and vegetables. <laughs> you really do, as this guy has found out. In order to really develop this story properly, you really have to go online and look at the picture. Because if somebody did not guess this, this guy was on steroids. They're really, as I said, people are getting stupider every day. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you like the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end-of-year fundraising. We're excited to announce that if you contribute between now and December 31st, your donation will be tripled, dollar for dollar, up to $20,000. That means that with your donation, plus our barnyard benefactors and an added boost from an anonymous donor, we're hoping to raise $60,000 for the year end. This is the time where we do the vast majority of fundraising for our entire year. If you're not already part of the flock, we invite you to join for $10 a month or $100 a year. You'll get some really cool perks, including weekly bonus content, access to our private flock Facebook group, which will soon be upgraded into a brand new platform, and an invitation to our monthly 
Flock Friday Zoom meetings for fun and engaging conversations with me, Marianne, and others in the flock. You will also have an opportunity to meet with me for one-on-one sessions to discuss your veganism, your activism, or whatever's on your mind. Plus, if you donate $100 or more, I will send you a personalized video message to show you my undying love and gratitude. And brand new this year, if you donate $250 or more, you will get that plus a really cool Our Hen House pin. So if you appreciate Our Hen House, if you believe in our mission to effectively mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, if you find community and solace in our shows and resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of indie media, please make a donation before December 31st and your donation will be tripled. Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated. To support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org donate. That's ourhenhouse.org donate. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also like us on Facebook, where you can also leave us a review or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.